welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our podcast today will be a little different. Because the Alabama Historical Association postponed its 2020 convention, Secretary Mark Wilson has arranged video panel discussions about the future of Alabama history shown live on Facebook. The AHA recorded these sessions, and to reach a larger audience, we are proud to present them as edited audio in the Alabama History Podcast. Good afternoon and welcome. I am Mark Wilson, Secretary of the Alabama Historical Association and Director of the Caroline Marshall Drawn Center for the Arts and Humanities in the College of Liberal Arts at Auburn University. We are joined today by leaders of the archival community from across the state. Dr. Marty Olaf is Professor of History and Director of the Wiregrass Archives at Troy University, Dothan. Robin Brown is Archivist of the Cobb Memorial Archives, a part of Chambers County Library in Valley. Dr. Howard Robinson is archivist at Alabama State University in Montgomery. Thank you all for joining us today. To be a historian and an archivist in the year 2020 must be quite interesting to say the least. Here we are at the end of the summer, beginning of fall, in the midst of a worldwide pandemic and also what we might describe as a moment of racial reckoning in the United States. In a real sense, we are witnessing history but we are also experiencing a change in how we understand the past and what questions we bring to our study of the past. As you all know, the Alabama Department of Archives and History released a statement of recommitment to building the future characterized by justice, human dignity, and a commitment to the well-being of all people. It's also true that local and institutional archives like yours are a critical part of our understanding of state and local history, including the history of slavery, segregation, and the long-term effects of racism. And so I'd like to start out by asking each of you to tell us, what kinds of stories of local history can we discover in your archive that might be of particular interest at this time? I think we'd love to start with Marty Olaf and then move to Valley with Robin and then move back to Institutional Archives, Alabama State with Howard. So, Marty? Thanks for having us all today and thanks for having me here. What kind of stories of local history can we find in the Wiregrass Archives for these interesting times? And let me start by saying that that apocryphal saying, may you live in interesting times, is a curse rather than a blessing for a reason. When I was thinking about how to answer this question, I thought I should probably start with a small description of the Wiregrass Archives. We're a little different than many of the archives in the center of the state, though I suspect that we're not that different from the Cobb Memorial Archives in that we have a collecting policy that extends into Georgia and, in our case, into Florida as well. We're willing to collect from approximately 30 counties in all three states to cover the wiregrass rather than just wiregrass Alabama. 
We were also established in 2002. Quite frankly, we've not been around very long. So collecting has been resource challenging, as it is with every archives. That said, we've collected a thousand cubic feet of material from the local area. And as you can imagine, we have a lot of collections from the Dothan and Henry County area and some from Houston County, which we're the county seat of. Then we have fewer collections the further out we go. We also have a fair number of digital, some born digital, some digitized collections. A few of the collections have come about by us reaching out to document our community rather than waiting for collections. In particular, we have gotten the collections that focus on African Americans from documentation activities. For example, in 2003, we partnered with some other institutions in the area to put together a centennial history of Houston County. And in that project, we went out and solicited photographs from people that we could then scan and get information about and publish in an Arcadia Press book. And one of those collections was the Dorothy Brown Collection. It's only three photographs, but it's two photographs of the first graduates of the Houston County High School for African Americans in 1940. So we have two young women of Mrs. Brown's extended family, the Weems family. We have a photograph also of the program of that graduation, and we have a photograph of a branch of the Weems family in a mule cart, but in the 1950s, the Weems family owned about 200 acres since Reconstruction in the northeast corner of Houston County. So that's a set of stories that you can begin to tease out from our collections. We had another project in 2016 funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, as well as a few other partners like Troy University and the Alabama Humanities Foundation, called the Community Common Heritage Project. We again solicited photographs from people in our community, scanned them, and got a lot of information about them. And we ended up with some pretty interesting collections from that. The Willadine Martin Hall collection is mostly work photographs photographs of her relatives at work. Her grandfather was an itinerant laborer, and so we have a few photographs of him in orange groves when he would go down to Florida to pick oranges during season. We have a few photographs of her mother as a daycare operator, a woman who owned a pretty prosperous daycare business. We have photographs of her from the 1970s and photographs of the daycare business some of which later on went to be published in a, I want to say, Life magazine article. Ms. Hall has since written a few stories about her mother. That's an enhanced collection that can still be worked on by anybody that's interested in doing that kind of research. We also have from that same collection, and I really like this, the Queen Amos collection, which is not only photographs of Ms. Amos, who was a member of the last group of WACs, Women's Army Corps members in the early 1970s before they were incorporated into the Army per se. She provided 135 multi-page African-American funeral programs from her extended family and body of friends, and this collection was begun by her mother. 
So it's a multi-year collection. It, it begins in the 1930s, but it's really mostly in the late 1960s through the 2000s. We have those scanned as PDFs, but we have not put them up online yet for use. But they're available, and there's a lot of information that can be teased out of African-American funeral programs, uh, particularly for social and cultural historians. Finally, we have the Bill Church Photo Collection. In March 1958, a member of the planning board in Dothan drove around an overwhelmingly African-American neighborhood and town called Southside and photographed every piece of property in that neighborhood because that neighborhood was going to be turned over to an urban renewal slum clearance project, which, as we know, has never been particularly friendly for the people who have lived there. And indeed, instead of erecting new housing for the people that lived there, this project drove all those people out and put in housing that no one that had lived there before could possibly afford. It drove out 175 African-American families and five working-class white families. I have 180 photographs of this, and there's one in particular that I really like. It shows a number of houses up a street, and if you look carefully, there is a sign tacked to a telephone pole. If you know what you're looking at, you can tell that that sign is a 1958 George Wallace for Governor sign. Remember in 58, Wallace didn't run as the most segregationist governor. He didn't pick that up until the 62 campaign. These and a number of other documentation projects like our Veterans History Oral Project and the Wiregrass Rural Church Documentation Projects are how we have, here in the Wiregrass, deliberately gone out and sought African-American collections rather than being in a position to accept African-American collections. And I say that because there is a divergence between my facility as part of Troy University and the fairly reticent African-American community. This is not to cast aspersions on the local African-American community, but as much as Dothan would like to say, like Atlanta, that it's a city too busy to hate, where it doesn't hate it's not fully culturally integrated either. There's a great amount of mutual avoidance between the white community and the African-American community in Dothan. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks, Marty. That's a good overview of collections, but also how archives uh, stand in the gap sometimes between communities and collecting. Talk to us about the Valley in Chambers County, Robin. Okay, great. Well, first, let me just say thank you so much for having me here and that it's great to be on this panel with Dr. Olaf and Dr. Robinson. Let me just give a little bit of background about our facility. So I'm speaking to you from Cobb Memorial Archives in Valley, Alabama. We were founded along with the H. Brady Bradshaw Library in 1976. I have been here in some capacity since 2014. Today I had in mind two collections that I'd like just to briefly discuss. These are two collections that I think have special importance in the year 2020. The first one is called the Margaret Freeman Collection. Mrs. Freeman was a retired school teacher in Chambers County. She had taught for 45 years, and then when she retired, she became a local historian. She was able to gather and collect and preserve histories of African-American schools and churches. 
and she donated two scrapbooks to the archives. So we're very fortunate to have those. They do share a lot of history about the African-American community that, you know, if she hadn't preserved it at that time, I'm not sure that it would have been preserved. So again, we're very fortunate to have that in our collection. These scrapbooks do provide researchers with tools to access and, and fully incorporate into their histories a more inclusive history of Chambers County. There's one other collection that I wanted to mention briefly. It is called the Chattahoochee Valley Human Relations Forum. It's a long collection title for a relatively small collection, but the forum was established in 1968 by three local women, and it soon grew to nearly 100 members. And the goal of this group was to gather together a racially diverse group of adults who sought to be examples of respect, understanding, communication, and social equality in the community. And this happened right as local schools were beginning to integrate. The group disbanded in 1972. As I said, it's a relatively small collection, um, but we do have some, some papers that document their functions. And um, I think it's just a good example of a local community coming together and trying to address a larger problem. I, I don't know that they made everything completely smooth, but I do think that they tried to, to actively foster a better community environment and start to smooth the path for social change. Thanks for that. And that's a reminder that even small collections can be windows onto those larger movements that are happening and asking those probing questions, and the mention of scrapbooks as well, things that some people might think, well, this may not be valuable, but obviously it has great value. Mm -hmm. Let's go to Montgomery, to Alabama State University. Dr. Robinson, talk to us about your vast collections there. Thank you for the invitation and the introduction. I'm pleased and honored to be on this panel. Alabama State, I guess, is, is unique in this conversation in that it is an institution that through the course of its evolution found itself in the crosshairs of not only race relations in the American South, but, but in the modern civil rights movement specifically. And so Montgomery is just an ideal place to be if one is interested in issues surrounding civil rights and social justice. Alabama State students, alum and faculty, have also been involved in what I used to call the modern civil rights movement. And I think I'm going to have to start thinking about different terminology because some of what's happened just recently in the last several months has, has even eclipsed in the magnitude and the breadth of some of the activism of the 1950s and 60s. However, if one is interested in looking at civil rights and the, really not just civil rights on a broader level, but the intricacies and the dynamics of organizations built around civil rights and human rights-related issues, then we have been fortunate enough to have a number of collections. Probably one of the more important collections is the Montgomery Improvement Association Collection. This organization was created in 1955 in response to the Montgomery bus boycott. We saw that the black leaders in town in Montgomery came together, talked about a boycott. Well, let me back up a little bit. When Rosa Parks was arrested, and many people know that story, Rosa Parks was arrested. It was a professor on campus, Joanne Robinson, who was affiliated with an organization called the Women's Political Council, a group of about 300 black women centered at Alabama State, but they had branches in different parts of the city. And they were interested in 
political awareness and political education, but also they were an advocacy organization. Women who were part of this organization had some issues with the buses, and so when Rosa Parks was arrested, they swung into action. They had already proposed boycotting the buses, but they had some opposition from the black men in, in, in Montgomery. They were able to push through that hostility on the night of Rosa Parks' arrest, and they ran off three hundred. They ran off thousands, actually, mimeographed copies of leaflet announcing a bus boycott on Alabama State's campus. And the next day, they distribute these these leaflets. And then that night, Nixon calls a number of people, including Martin Luther King, says that we're looking at a boycott and we want to meet about this. There was a subsequent meeting and the creation of the Montgomery Approval Association to execute the bus boycott. So this organization really sets the stage for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So the Southern Christian Leadership Conference is supposed to do around the South what the Montgomery Approval Association did in Montgomery. Many of the members of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference were also members of the Montgomery Improvement Association. So we have those papers. They are intricate and detailed papers. And students who are interested in protests and civil disobedience come and look at those papers. There's a number of student activists who utilize the collection because they want to understand the protest schemes of the past and how they could be applicable to the present. We also have, again, the E.D. Nixon papers. That's a very interesting collection. Nita Nixon was a labor organizer. He was a member of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, a black labor union. He was very intricately involved in the origins of the Montgomery bus boycott. Uh, we also had a Robert and Jean Gratz collection. Reverend Robert Gratz, a Lutheran minister, came to Alabama as a white minister, took over Trinity Lutheran Church in the center of the black part of West Montgomery. And he became intricately involved in the Montgomery bus boycott, and we have his papers. He had a little phone book, and really he would capture all of his activities in this phone book. So we must have 60 years worth of his phone book appointments, but also his activities, which transcend the modern civil rights movement and move into a human rights agenda. And so there's certainly materials in his collection respective to gay and lesbian or LGBT agitation of rights respected to the rights of the handicap, and they lived in Appalachia for some time, and there are some advocacy documents in his collection. And then, of course, we have Reverend Richard Boone collection. Richard Boone worked with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, but he, he created a spinoff organization in Montgomery. His collection is a rich collection. He was a controversial figure, a more reactionary figure, and so you get to see some of the elements of the latter civil rights movement as you move into the late 1960s, 68, 69. 1970, you get to see the reflection of that in his papers. That's just a few of the collections we have at Alabama State University. Today, we are reaching out to our students to get them to deposit with us images and conversations about their own participation in the various protests when they return home during COVID shutdown. I think that promises to be an interesting collection as we amass more information and materials relative to this most recent protest wave. Excellent. Thank you. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I think it underscores the fact that none of these collections that any of you have talked about would be there if it were not for your institution or an institution like yours collecting those and archivists like yourselves who are processing those collections, caring for those collections and making them available for researchers. But it's also true that you, at the same time, are helping researchers find those collections and make those known 
to the wider world, you are also trying to preserve history that's taking place now or diversifying your collections with things that are out there because these collections don't just appear from nowhere. I guess sometimes they might on your back door, but mostly people are in contact with you because they have something of value that they want to provide to the historical community. And so my question now is, what do you hope the future of your archive will look like? What kind of collections do you hope to acquire in the future? And then after each of these folks respond to that question, we'll take questions on Facebook from anyone who's out there for any or all of these speakers. We'll go in the same order. Marty, what do you hope the future looks like? The Wiregrass Archives is, like so many other archives, very resource-constrained. We don't have a lot of shelf space. Even if I double my shelf space, I'm going to fill it up with collections that come in because we've started to get known in this area. But there is a difference between collecting, which is relatively passive, and what archivists have tried to do since the early 1970s, and that shift the profession over to active documentation. In my last little spiel, you heard me talk about documentation projects that we have done. This is the act of reaching out into the community to gather those things writ large that the community may not know that it has. Some of this is not written material. Many of the communities that traditionally don't have much to do with formal archives don't have much to do with formal archives because they are not, first and foremost, part of a culture that writes a lot of stuff down, that keeps a lot of records. These are not people that write diaries and necessarily write and keep letters. Archives are full of that material. And what we found is it tends to come out of already privileged groups. One of the things that I need to do is to reach out into the community of African Americans, of poorer whites, of our growing Latinx population down here. Also, we have a fairly large Asian American, particularly a Southeast Asian American community here. And we have an emerging Middle Eastern community. If we want to break it up by ethnicity, Middle-class, well-educated people tend to create a lot of their own records. They tend to save records. They tend to value written things. Other groups tend to tell each other their stories. So we have to reach out into our communities and gather in those stories. This may mean photographic projects. This may mean oral history projects. To gather in COVID-19 material, for example, I started a project on March 20th. I started it with a letter to the editor of our local newspaper, the Dothan Eagle, soliciting mostly student writings based on the idea that a lot of teachers seem to be asking their students to write about their COVID-19 experiences, but I suspected that they didn't have any real place to put those writings of students. So I created this project for down here, it's grown a little bit. I didn't get a lot of response from the education community, but many other people wrote me, and they wrote memoirs, you might say. I've also been contacted by people who wanted to give me text strings. From I have one that wanted to give me a text string of 13 people, and so I ended up having 13 donor agreements come in with this text string so that we could use that and make it available for research. It's the old, what did you do on your summer vacation, but your summer vacation started in March because you locked down for COVID. We're going to continue to push that and find out what people in 
the Wiregrass did during their COVID activities, and we're bouncing back up again, so we may be locked down again. Who knows? As well as reach out into our ethnic communities to gather their information, even if it's not recorded in a written fashion. Excellent. Thank you for that. That's a good point. Robin, what's the future look like? So I hope in Chambers County and in Hub Archives, in the future, we will have a more diverse and inclusive historical record. I think we already do have inclusive records, but I would like to see it even increase and become more fully representative of what life is like in Chambers County. You know, Marty mentioned wonderful ways of outreach, and that's something that we're working to do, although COVID-19 has made that a little difficult. One thing I've always found helpful in the past in terms of outreach and building new relationships and sometimes even gaining new collections would be exhibits. So that's usually a good way for us to reach our community and to get people interested in things that we are collecting. One collection in particular I would love to see more of. Uh, I've been working recently on, on trying to compile a history of the suffrage movement in Chambers County. I know that there was at least one suffrage association. I haven't been able to find too many primary sources, but several helpful club records, like civic or study club records, and uh, newspaper articles. And so if anybody out there has anything with the Lafette Suffrage Association, that would just be a remarkable find. And I did just want to mention one other point, because the COVID-19 crisis has been with us since March and become such a big facet of our lives in 2020, we put a call on Facebook to have people uh, consider keeping records of their lives and consider donating them to the archives. And then in one kind of fun outreach, we did a history club this summer, kind of along with our summer reading program. And one of the possible activities was to create something called a foreign zine. So that's like a homemade magazine about what your life has been like uh, since the COVID-19 crisis. And so we've had a few wonderful artists take us up on that offer. And it was mostly students aged maybe 10 to probably 10 to 13 that had turned in a quarantine. But I think one thing that's really neat about something like that is that a student so young is, is participating in history and not just participating, but actually making history and having a record that will be kept in the archives. Great. What a creative example of something happening in the community that needs to be preserved for future generations. Howard, what's the future look like? Montgomery and Alabama State. One thing is, while there's quarantine, I really like that idea. One of the things that I think we are doing at Alabama State, or have been doing, is Partnerships. So we partnered with the National Park Service and built an interpretive center that the National Park Service is running on the campus of Alabama State University. The interpretive center deals with the Selma and Montgomery Mark and the voting rights campaign around that mark. And so we certainly have made a, a focus of collecting materials related to voting rights campaign. Just recently, we were looking for a picture of a high school student who had participated in some of the activism and protests going in 1965. And her father had shot some Super 8 color film of the Selma Montgomery March, the last day of the march. It's just wonderful. About 15 minutes of film. 
And so certainly photographs and film is really in high demand. We get a lot of requests for that. So we are looking towards growing that part of our collection. We have a partnership with the National Park Service. So we are, we're helping to provide some interpretation that they are utilizing in the exhibits in that facility. So we have certainly focused our collection themes around voting rights in the Selma of Montgomery March. There's another built-in mechanism that the dean of the library prompted me to initiate about 17 years ago, and that is a patrons and donors program. One of the criticisms that we got was that people donate to the Alabama State's archives, and you just put them in a box and put them in a room, and then, you know, they're never to be seen again. Yeah, we do put them in a box and put them in a climate control room. However, we started doing a patrons and donors program which allowed us to showcase the collections that we've recruited over the past year, to thank the people who have donated those collections and made, made monetary donations to our outreach arm. So we partnered with the National Center for the Study of Civil Rights and African American Culture. The archives in that organization on campus have a symbiotic relationship that allows us to do public programs. So some of our exhibits drive those public programs. On the flip side, we could make appeals to the public for specific types of materials through these thematic programs. That has worked well. We have two rather large collections, uh, the Alabama Democratic Conference, political organization, and then the Alabama State Teachers Association, which is the Black Labor Union for Teachers before the merger of the two organizations, two white and black organizations, American Education Association. These two collections look at um, both politics and education county by county level throughout the state. So this is a rich collection that allows us to then want to augment that collection with other materials related to, to education throughout the state of Alabama, particularly African-American education. Those are some of the areas that we'll be focusing on education, voting rights. Of course, we have a strong civil rights component to our archives. Want to still and really want to try to come up with ways to make sure that we collect materials that reflect what's happening today in the protest. Talk to us about the response of students for that call for materials related to protests today. Are you getting students bringing stuff to put into the box to put into the room? We're actually starting to work with the SGA and social influencers, young social campus. We have a message on our webpage, but we haven't gotten a lot of response from that. I'm going to prime the pump. I spoke at one of these protests in Montgomery, and my wife and I went to the most recent March on Washington, and so I'm going to upload some of the materials that reflect my own involvement. We're going to try to prime the pump with that approach. We're trying to figure out ways to reach students and, and get them to participate, in, and so that's been challenging. We have a question that's come through related to oral histories in your collections, and so I'm going to ask an unfair question. If we can only listen to one hour of oral history from your collection, what do you think we should listen to? Marty? We have lots of oral histories. We have about 40 hours of the Veterans Oral History Project, which began in 2003 and really only went until about 2005. But we also have hours and hours and hours of histories taken from people in the area in the 1980s and 1990s generally older people from an organization called Dothan Landmark Foundation, Inc., which runs Landmark Park, also had an oral history program. And they went to retirement communities and talked to retirees about what life was like 60 years earlier in the 19-teens and 1920s, 1930s. Also, one of our local American history class 
did 15 to 20 minute oral histories of veterans, but they also captured a lot of information about one of the local World War II POW camp extensions that was here in Dothan. We probably have close to a hundred of individual discussions that I have been teaching oral history classes on and off for 15, 18 years, and my classes donate their product to the Wiregrass Archives. Some of the veteran stuff that I have is pretty interesting, although I'd say that maybe the most interesting non-veteran thing is an oral history of a wide spot in a local creek out in Geneva County that was used both for a swimming hole and as a baptismal pool. One of the most interesting things is that even on a Saturday or Sunday, when the kids were swinging on the rope swing and splashing around in this pond, whenever they heard the congregation singing coming down toward this pond called Frog Dip, they would respectfully get out of the pond and wait until the baptism was over. We also have some photographs of one of the baptisms in this pond from the mid-1980s. So that might be the most interesting one to me, although it is hard to make a choice. Thank you. That one's a great example of why non-text-based resources are so important for understanding. Robin? Well, thank you. We do have collections of oral histories here. We have some that were collected probably in the... 80s and 90s, and these are mostly done by historically-minded community members kind of interviewing each other. And I know one of the people whom we have interviews was like a local columnist who wrote about historical features, and so I think as part of his work in researching for the column, he would interview local people. So we're very fortunate to have those. And we also have a pretty large collection of veteran interviews, part of the Veterans History Project. And so if I had to choose one, it, it would be from the Veterans History Project, I think. I don't want to give any names. I think they're all wonderful. But I, if I had to choose one, I would choose one from the, the Veterans History Project. Excellent. Thank you. It's a good, important aspect of the community history that often brings in diversity, even when we may not expect it. Howard, oral history. Yeah, we have a pretty robust oral history collection, maybe close to 300 and some odd oral histories in different formats. Of course, we have a strong civil rights focus and the number of oral histories that are relative to the university over time itself. And with civil rights, I really cherish we did have Belafonte. We've been able to capture some of the important voices in the civil rights movement. Now, there's an oral history with Mary Ethel Doja Jones. She was one of the civil rights singers. During the bus boycott, she really got a start, but she was very young at the time, you know, nine or ten. And so her oral history is, is engaging. One, I ask her to sing a number of songs during the oral history, and that's really enthralling to hear her sing these songs. But also, people know the song, We Shall Overcome. Well, there's a verse of We Shall Overcome that she is responsible for, that was a pretty popular verse of that song, and that we are not afraid. She tells a story of, as a young person, I'm going up to the Highlander Folk School in Montreal, Tennessee, disobedience, nonviolent training with folks from Montgomery and her, her, her and it's these singers, these very young Montgomery girls who sang at different civil rights events. This particular day, the police raided the Highlander Folk School and cut off all the lights. And so uh, the, the children initially were terrified, but in the darkness, they started to sing. 
They sung together so often that they knew how the Copart sounded. They could recognize their voice. So as they started to sing, Doja knew that her sister was okay because she could hear her sister. And then she added the verse in that instance of we are not afraid as a way to heal their resolve and to motivate the, those other people to get through that what was for them a very traumatic experience. And to hear her tell that story and then sing that song and to understand that phrase then reverberated throughout the civil rights movement, I think was particularly rewarding for me to experience. And so you, you can hear that on our webpage. What a beautiful story, and the opportunity to hear that straight from your webpage is wonderful. We've got a question. I'll put it on the screen for Howard, but it could be for anyone. Uh, from Debbie Pendleton, always wanted to see an oral history project with Alabama teachers who were the first to teach in integrated public schools. That seems to fit nicely with your collections. Do you have any oral histories related to that topic? Actually, we do. We didn't do it purposely, but we did talk to a number of teachers. We talked about being a part of the integration process, you know, either in Montgomery or in other places around the state or the South. And so we do have some of those. I think that we could be more purposeful about that. Excellent. Thank you. And this can be for anyone from Frazine Taylor. What about genealogists who might want to visit your collection? Should they come see you? Robin, let's start with you. Yes. Well, we certainly do have genealogy collections. Um, a pretty extensive one, especially for, you know, East Alabama and West Georgia, you know, Chambers County and the surrounding area. So we'd be delighted to help in any way that I can. Excellent. Thank you. Marty? We have specifically not collected genealogical material. We began as an academic archives aimed primarily at more standard history uh, for students. But as you collect in communities, you run across collections that are genealogical. So we have collected some of that, but we don't have the library, nor do we have the budget to buy library books to support genealogical collections. We are very reluctant to take specifically genealogical collections. We'll take family history writ large, but specifically genealogical, that tends to go to the Dothan Houston County Public Library. Excellent. Howard? Well, you know, I kind of chuckled at that question because, because yes, we do have both collections that lend themselves to genealogical research and then collections that are really mobilized with an eye towards genealogy. I say that because Frazier Taylor made sure that 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 happened at Alabama State, so she works with those archives. We have a funeral program collection, and then we have a collection of funeral homes, of black funeral homes throughout the state. So those are very useful. We have a list of all the graduates of Alabama State from the late 19th century to today. Then we have all the student newspapers, and there were several editions of student newspapers over the years, accessible and keyword searchable online. With all the yearbooks accessible, keyword searchable online. The university had a long time magazine, ASU Today. We have a full run of the ASU Today magazines searchable online. So these resources are also useful for people who are interested in genealogy. And we feel the inquiries both from professional historians, but also from people who are doing genealogical research about people they think supported Alabama State at some point in the past. These resources help us to address their inquiries. Thank you. And on behalf of the Alabama Historical Association, I want to say thanks for participating in this 
program today. I think it gives us all a better sense of what archives are meant to do, what their mission is, what their purpose is, and what you do. And we know that the future of Alabama history is dependent on what you are doing today. And so all of us in the history community and beyond say thank you for the work that you are doing. And we look forward to working with you in the future to meet all of the goals and all of the objectives that we've talked about here today. So thanks. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at City Stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.